Well, what a great time of worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to the book of Philippians. And those of you that are married in this room know that every marriage comes to kind of a breaking point, a point of pressure, a point uh, where everything begins to pivot and you, you begin to have your first conflict. And typically that first conflict uh, that you come up to is a conflict that never really ever erases within your marriage. I don't know one couple in all of my history of life, which isn't that long, but I don't know one couple who's ever figured out the right answer, the right way to navigate this problem. Those of you that are not married, it's kind of a blessing that you don't have to deal with this because this can be very difficult, very stressful, uh, very hard uh, to walk through this particular conflict. And the conflict usually surrounds this one question. Where would you like to eat today? You know how that goes out, guys. You, you know, you ask that. Like, honey, where would you like to eat today? And what is the typical response? I don't care anywhere. Something to that nature. And so with the green light, you say, okay, and you pick a restaurant. And guess what is said in response when you mention that restaurant? No, I don't really want to eat there. You just said anywhere. It doesn't matter. Well, I picked a place and apparently it matters. And then there's this back and forth of, well, you choose. No, you choose. No, I don't care. No, you don't care. No, nothing cares. Listen, when you go through that all these years, guess what happens? You have kids. And when you add kids to the mix, it gets a whole lot more difficult because not only are the two people there, but now you have a whole crew of people. And Uniquely, since the two people never really agreed on that one thing, you bring these other kids in and they don't agree with the two people. And so you have all these scenarios and situations that make it very difficult. And those of you with kids understand this, that when it comes to choosing a restaurant, like today you're going to go to lunch and you're going to have this conflict. I bet you you have this conflict when you're driving out of the parking lot today. Where do we want to eat? What do we want to eat? Bless you if you've already prepared lunch and if you're ready for it. But if you're going to a restaurant and you've got kids, this is what's going to happen. Either what's going to happen is it's going to be a win-loss situation, a loss-win situation, a loss-loss situation, and maybe on occasion a win-win situation. What do you mean by that? Well, let's consider the win-loss situation. Kids win, parents lose. We have those kind of places in our life where the kids love to eat there, but the parents, disgusting. Well, what do you mean? Give me an example. Chuck E. Cheese. Kids love that place. Us, we're not a big fan of cardboard pizza, all right? Then you have the, uh, you have the, the loss-win situation where the kids lose and the parents win. For our family, it's pretty much anything that wasn't originated in America, okay? So if it's like Mexican or Chinese, that's difficult to navigate for our family. I mean, if we ever go Thai or, or Indian or something like that, it's just a loss for the kids. They, they struggle to find something they want to eat, but we love it. We love to eat that kind of food. We love Italian food. We, we love Mexican food. We love Chinese food, but it becomes a loss for them and a win for us. And then you have the lose-lose situation. Nobody wins in the lose-lose situation. Let me give you an example. Taco Bell. Nobody wins at Taco Bell. You may like it a little bit, but eight hours later, you all lose. 
And then there is the blessed occasional win-win situation. You have your win-wins if you've parented long enough and if you've been married long enough that you kind of your go-to. If you can't navigate, if you can't try something new, you know that we can at least agree on this. We can at least all be happy. Ours is Chick-fil-A. Everybody's happy at Chick-fil-A. Everybody's happy at Chick-fil-A, but they're not open on Sundays. Like, I know it's Christian, but Christians got to eat too, all right? The win-win situation. Hey, what if your life, what if all of your life could be a win-win? You know, we've experienced loss win and we've experienced win-win, and we've experienced lose-lose, but what if all of your life, from this point forward, all the way to the end and on, could be a win-win situation? The Apostle Paul saw his life as a win-win. He looked at both his life and what was coming in his life as a complete win. He had a unique perspective that I think God wants us to have in his situation and his life, that God wants us to have a view that no matter what happens, no matter what we face, it is a win-win for us. I want to read to you this morning. We're going to focus on one verse this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Draw your attention there, and if you'd stand in honor of God's Word this morning. This is Paul's win-win. Listen to what he says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Win-win. You can be seated. If you've been with us any over the past several weeks, you know that Paul's situation was anything what you would think a win. He was in a really difficult scenario and a really difficult setting. He was in prison. He was chained to a prison guard. He was older in life. He was near the end of his life. He was waiting on a trial to be met before Caesar. And likely, at the result of that trial, at the result of his hearing with Caesar, the most cruel Caesar that the world had known to this point in time, he would die. And Paul saw his situation and what could come of his situation as nothing but a win. It was win-win. No matter what happened, no matter what took place, no matter what circumstance he was in, it was a win for him. And no matter what happened after this, like if his head was to be cut off, if he was to be crucified, he saw it as a win-win. How does he do that? How can Paul look at his life, his scenario, his setting, with such optimism, with such victory. Is it a false victory? Is it, is it just a, a glass half full type guy? How did Paul see it as a win-win situation? And how can we view our lives as a win-win situation? Well, the solution is what he says right here in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, there's two things that Paul saw. And the first thing is this, his life had a purpose. Paul saw his life having a purpose. His life mattered. And what was happening in his life, what was taking place in his life mattered because of something significant in his life. To live is Christ. 
You see, life has a purpose. And Paul found that purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. Because of his relationship with Christ, Paul was able to view, no matter what situation or scenario he was facing, Paul was able to view his life as having a purpose. That purpose was wrapped up and began in the fact that Paul saw his identity in that purpose. Everything about who Paul was hinged upon Jesus. His life changed the moment he met Jesus Christ. And from that moment forward, Paul saw his life from the angle, from the mirror, through the window of Jesus Christ. His salvation changed everything for him. It created a new man, a man that was never the same. He was transformed and different. He lived in a new way with a new purpose. That purpose was driven by who he was in Christ. Christ made him who he was. Paul tells the story over and over and over again through his journey in the book of Acts. That moment that he met Jesus Christ and from that moment everything, who he was before, but from that moment everything changed at that moment. And his life was set on a trajectory. His life was shaped and formed because of what Christ was to him and what Christ had done for him. His identity was completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It was at the top of his resume, Jesus It was the first thing to roll off his tongue when he introduced himself in Christ. If he had had a Facebook profile, it would have been at the top of that. It would have been all over his profile picture or his wallpaper on the back. When he looked in the mirror every day, he saw himself in Christ for me to live is Christ. My life is wrapped up. My life is identified by Christ. Now we, we identify ourselves in so many different ways. There are so many things that we look at that make us who we are, that make up the makeup of you. You know, maybe it's, it's, your, it's your last name. You and I all came from a family We all have a heritage in that regard. And your family and your last name define certain things about you. You identify yourself by that. You have a last name. And that last name typically means something. I'm a Welch. And so that means certain things. In fact, there are certain features that I have. Both my face, my size, my height, my shape are shaped by the DNA, by the fact that I'm Welch. My nose looks like it does because this is a Welch nose. It's distinct to the Welches. You look at my dad, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, and you're going to find something similar there. You look in the face of my mom, you look in the face of her family, and you're going to find certain features that are there with that. So we identify ourselves a lot of times by, by who we came from and where we came from. Sometimes we identify ourselves by actually where we came from. You have a citizenship. Most of you are probably American or American. 
Land of the free, home of the brave. It's our citizenship. It defines us. We know what that means. We can state the Pledge of Allegiance, and we are American and enjoy all the things American. But then you kind of narrow that down just a little bit. And each of us are from particular states. Not everybody in here is from North Carolina, but some of you are from North Carolina, and that means something. You root for certain things. You like certain things. You cook your barbecue a certain way because of where you're from. I'm from Texas, and that means some things as well. So we identify ourselves by that. And then we even go even narrow with that. You identify yourself from like actually what town you are from and what part of the state you're from and so on and so forth. We identify ourselves by, by our jobs. I'm an accountant, a banker, a teacher, I'm a nurse. I'm white collar, blue collar. Me? I'm a pastor. We identify ourselves by those kind of things. And there's so many other ways that we identify ourselves. So many other ways that we label and mark ourselves. But one day, the only identity that you have and will have will be whether you knew Jesus or not. Whether you are Christ's and that Christ is yours or not. In 1,000 years, you're not going to be known by your last name. You're not going to be known by what that meant. You're not going to be known as an American. You're not going to be known as a North Carolinian. You're not going to be known as a banker, an accountant, a stay-at-home mom, a teacher. You are either Christ or you are not. That is the most identifying marker of who you are. Jesus Christ, who you are, is wrapped up in him. And Paul saw himself that way. Paul realized, man, ultimately I am Christ and he is mine that I belong to him and who I am is defined by him. What I do, what I value, what I love is defined by him. He saw his identity, which is a beautiful thing in this world that tries to make you measure up and become something. To understand that in Jesus, the only thing that lasts is that. Your age is not going to last. Your popularity is not going to last. Whether you were good enough, strong enough, smart enough, or fast enough is not going to last. The only thing that will last is who you are in him. And Paul said, that's my life. That's who I am. And, And that identity grew in him to an inward obsession for me to live is Christ. It wasn't just that his life was defined by Christ. It was that Christ was his life. He was living for Christ. It became an inward obsession. Paul was obsessed with Christ. He was passionate about Christ. And we see through his writing over and over and over again that Paul made his aim in life to walk with Christ. He wanted his personal walk and journey with Christ to increase. He gained everything he needed from that journey and walk with Christ. His knowledge of the Savior and who Jesus was was the most important thing about what he did. His steps, his life, his actions, his obsession, his pursuit was to know Christ more. He says it in chapter 3, I want to know Christ. 
I want to know him more and more and more. He prays for this Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 8, about their knowledge. They want, he wants their knowledge to increase of who they are and what Christ has done. It was an obsession of his. You know, we all have our obsessions. We all have our passions. We all have things that we love and like. And when you are passionate about something and when you are obsessed with something, like when you're serious about something, you naturally have an interest in gaining more knowledge about the thing that you're obsessed about. You know, we do this with, with our hobbies. You know, some of you have the hobby of golf. And the more that you play golf and the more that you like golf, the more that you know about golf. You know history about golf. You know who the greatest golfers of all time are. You know who the per current golfers, you know the best golf courses to play at. Maybe you've even sought and pursued to be able to play at some of those places. You know the dynamics of a golf swing. You can't do it, but you know the dynamics of the golf swing. Like you study that. You, you read magazines. You, there's a whole TV program. There's a whole TV channel for you. And take this with any hobby. If you run, if you work out, if you knit, if you are passionate about knitting, there's a magazine you can subscribe to to learn more about knitting and all the things that go into that and whatever that is all about. <laughs> if you hunt, if you fish, the, the more passionate about something you are, the more obsessed with something you are, the more you know about it. Many of us understand this about our work. We value what we do. We like what we do. And, and many of you have the opportunity to do what you want to do. You love what you do. And because of what you do, because you have a passion for it, because you have a like for it, you, you're growing in it. You want to read more about it. You want to understand more about it. Experiences gain you more knowledge about it. There are things about what you do that we could never understand because you're in it. You care about it and you do it. And so your knowledge is expanded with your experience. Some of you are fans of particular teams. And because of that, you, you know everything about them. I mean, you are through and through. And your knowledge and all that expands. I wonder if there's a growing inward obsession in you for who you really are as Christ's. And if that obsession has driven you to know more and more and more about him, more experiences with him, more knowledge of him, more time in his word, more walking with him. You see, the more obsessed we are with Christ and who we are in Christ, the more that we'll know about Christ. Love what Ronnie Floyd said just this past week. If you're not winning in your personal time with Christ, then you're not winning anywhere. Nothing matters more. That is life. And it ought to obsess us, this knowing Jesus, this walking with Jesus, this following Jesus, and knowing who he is and knowing his character and mimicking and copying that character in our own lives. The longer we walk, the deeper we walk, the more we ought to know because we're obsessed with who we are in Christ and who he is in us. Life has a purpose. Paul found that in Christ, his identity, his inward obsession, but it was also, it was also this, this outward thing for Paul. This purpose, this, 
in Christ, to live as Christ was an outward thing. Notice what he says in verse 22. He's kind of torn between some things. We'll get into that in just a minute. But he says this in verse 22. If, if I am to live, because it was really unsure whether he was going to live or die. He didn't know how much longer he had. But if I do live, notice what he says. That means fruitful labor for me. Paul realized that the more he identified himself with Christ and understood who he was, the more that he knew Christ, the more he realized Christ had a purpose for him and God was using him. Paul saw his life as fruitful. Paul saw his life as useful. Paul realized, I'm put on this earth, and in fact, I'm put in this prison for a reason. And if God has me stay alive, if Christ doesn't take me to heaven, then there's a reason for that. And that means he wants to do something through me. God wants to use me. Paul saw his life as an outward obsession there. This, this in Christ meant something outward. He also says in verse 24, he says, but it, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, because I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. As long as he was alive. Paul knew he was going to be used by Christ. That God's going to do stuff through him. Paul wanted his life to count. He knew his life mattered because of his identity in Jesus. And he wanted to make sure, and he knew that every day on this earth could be used for Christ. Today is Jesus' day. Today, Jesus has something for me and through me. There are people like these Philippians. There are people like this jailer that God has me here for. Listen, I want you to understand the reason you are alive today and you did not die last night is because God has use for you today. Who you are as Christ's. He wants to use your life today. That's why he didn't take you to heaven tomorrow, last night. That's why you're still kicking. That's why your heart's still beating. That's why you're still breathing. Because God has a purpose for you. When you see your life as Paul did in Christ and as an offering to others, you realize there is a reason and my life is wrapped up in him. I love what C.T. Studd said in his great poem, only one life will soon be passed, but only what is done for Christ will last. You think about that. You've accomplished a lot of things in your life. You've accumulated stuff. You've built things, you've made things. You probably got trophies in your house somewhere, certificates. You've been patted on the back. There are things that you're proud of. But in 10,000 years, nobody cares how quickly you ran the 40 when you were 18. Nobody cares how much money you made in 2019. 
Nobody cares what title is on the wall outside your office. The only thing that matters is how you let who you are in Jesus be used for him. For me to live is Christ. And so no matter what happens, no matter what takes place, if that's my focus, Christ, who I am, how I know him, how I walk with him, and how he uses me, nothing else matters. Every day matters for you, though. You mean something. Your life makes a difference for eternity when to live is Christ. Your life has a purpose, and that's a win. But there was another side to this coin for Paul. You see, Paul faced and knew it was coming soon, the thing that every single one of us has to face one day. Paul knew death was imminent for him. He was old, that was on one hand, but he was also in prison. He was about to face the most angry and cruel Caesar that the Roman Empire had had to this point. And that Caesar hated two things that Paul had. One of them, he hated Jews. Paul's heritage and citizenship, though Roman, was also Jewish. Paul was a full-blooded Jew. And so because of that, he was going to be hated by Caesar. But the second thing was he was also a Christian, and Caesar also hated Christians. So he had two strikes against him. So likely when Paul stood before Caesar, that was it for him. Whatever he said, whatever case he made, more than likely it was off with his head, or hang him, or crucify him, or throw him in the Colosseum, and let's make money being entertained by his death. Paul knew that was coming for him. And the crazy thing about Paul, like he knew that. And he was giddy about it. Like Paul was excited about his death. Listen to what he says here in, in verse 22. He says, so for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, Paul saw death as a reward. Life had a purpose, but he saw death as having a reward. But listen to what he says here in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. God's going to use it. Jesus is going to do something with it. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm not, I'm not really sure. It could go either way. Like one minute, I'm really excited about sticking in this prison and being used by God further. But on the other hand, man, I, I'm excited about dying. I'm really not sure would you. If like you gave me a choice and you put a gun up to my head right now and said, you got to make a choice. I don't know what I would say. I'm really not sure. I'm pressed between the two. I'm between a rock and a hard place, he says in verse 23. My, my desire, my deepest desire is to depart and be with Christ. And then notice what he says. For that is far better. So often when we speak of death, we speak of death as being a loss. So and so lost their life. They lost the battle to cancer. They lost their life through a struggle. They lost their life in a car accident. 
there's a sense of pity and a sense of sorrow and grief that we have for people who lose their life. But Paul did not see death as a loss at all. He saw it as a gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here he says in verse 24, for, uh, verse 23, for that is far better for me to depart and go to heaven, for me to die. It's far better. Now, listen, we, we are in church today and we are worshiping Jesus. This is a normal church worship service. And though some of you have acted a little bit like it today, this is not a funeral, okay? This is not a funeral, all right? We're not celebrating a funeral and walking through that today very much. Some of you need to tell your face that, but that's okay. I'm just teasing with you. So what I'm about to say, I, I would normally not say at a funeral because we're not at a funeral, so I can say that, say this. Typically funerals, we, we, we want to encourage those grieving, those who have uh, are grieving the death of their loved one and comforting them. We want to give them um, encouragement. We want to bring out the scriptures and promises of God, of salvation and eternal life. And so typically this is not something I would say at a funeral, but we're not at one. So I, I want you to hear me say this, because I believe this with all my heart. If you know Jesus Christ, the greatest thing that will ever happen to you is you will die. Because your last breath here in earth will be the beginning of your first inhale within heaven. In fact, your greatest breath here on earth will be your last one. Because following that breath, if you are in Christ, is your first breath with Jesus. Think about that. How is that a bad thing? Like, I don't feel sorry for you one bit when you die. Like, I'm not going to high-five anybody. I promise you that, okay? We're not going to say, yes. They're gone. Thank goodness they're gone. It's, it's not what Paul is saying here. He's also not saying, please kill me now. That's not what he's saying. He's not suicidal. Clearly, he's purposed. And he understands several things about what's ahead for him and how death is a reward. He understood that at death, he gained a better body. At death, he cast off this old, dying, and decaying body, and he was given a real one, a one that doesn't decay. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or verse 8, he says this, to be absent from the body is what? to be present with the Lord. Paul realized that when he sheds this life, when this body decays and dies, he gets an immortal one, a resurrected one, one without the stains and tainting of sin and death, one that cannot die, one that cannot get sick, one that does not age. And Paul was looking forward to that new body because he was an old man. 
He felt the ailments of that. He looked in the mirror every day and said, there's less hair. There's more wrinkles. This thing hurts more. Do you not look in the mirror and think that? Whether you realize it or not, the moment you were born, you began a journey of death. And the older we get, and the more we go, this thing doesn't work like it used to work. And there's a point in time where the decay of you, the decay of your body, and that process of death gets to a point where your body cannot beat what it has. And it gives up. And if you know Christ, he then gives you one that nothing can beat. Because where it is, there's nothing that can harm it. And Paul looked forward. He gained a better body. He also gained a better home. We know what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul would get his home. Paul realized earth's not my home. Paul realized Roman citizenship and Jewish citizenship is not my home. That ultimately I was made for more. And my home, my destiny, because of my identity in Jesus Christ is heaven. And I can't wait to get there because that home is better than this home. That home doesn't have a mortgage. Jesus paid that mortgage. That home doesn't have property taxes because Jesus took care of that. He owns it all. He doesn't need your taxes. And Paul looked forward to that new home because that's what he was made for. You weren't made for earth. You weren't made for this place. You were made for that place. And when we die, we gain a better home. We also gain a better inheritance. This is going to drive you financial advisors nuts. But listen to this, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. You see, our reward is not here. Our inheritance, our accumulated wealth is not here. It's in heaven. Jesus was given the kingdom of God. And Jesus shares that kingdom with us, making us co-heirs with him. We inherit God's kingdom, his wealth and his riches. Now, this is not something that you think of, well, that's why you don't need to worry about your retirement. That's not what it says at all. You need to understand you got a better one. You got something better than you could never earn or save coming to you. And Paul realized he's going to gain that one day. And that heaven and what the reward is in heaven is so much richer than the reward here on earth. One day, a little girl and her dad were walking outside at night looking up at the stars. And the little girl said to her dad, God, Dad, if, if heaven looks this so, so good on this side, what must the other side of it be like? I'm going to tell you something. I, I know that as a believer, you and I probably agree that heaven's cool. We don't have a clue just how sweet and awesome it is. <laughs> I love the questions that people ask sometimes about me about heaven. So, you, Pastor, you think heaven's going to have golf? You think heaven's going to have a mall? You think heaven's going to have, you know, a lake that I can go fishing in? 
or when I go up to heaven, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be doing this or that. You, listen, let me tell you something. Whatever you can imagine, your greatest day on earth isn't gonna compare to one great second in heaven. Amen. Nothing like it. See, death's a war because we gain a better inheritance, and Paul also understood that he gained a better fellowship. He saw death as a reward because he gained a better fellowship. In this world, we live in a dissolving family circle. In fact, the longer that we live, the more that we see people like mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and so on and so forth, pass away. Those relationships are broken and gone. You live long enough and you're a stranger on this earth. But in heaven, this circle is never broken because death is no more. And so friends and family, us, are never separated. It's eternal. There really is a truth that if they knew Christ and you know Christ, you will see them again. You will see them better than they ever were. In fact, the things that nagged you about them and that annoyed you about them, they're not going to have that anymore. Praise God for that. We gain a better fellowship. There was a young pastor that was called to the bedside of an aging church member, a man that had walked with the Lord many years and just been given the word that um, it was his last few days. To call the family in, he was put on hospice, and this man's life was charted towards death. And so the pastor went in. He had never visited a person who was dying at their bedside. And so he, he thought and prayed about it. He thought, man, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with this gentleman what I think is one of the greatest verses ever. And so he went to the hospital. He stood by the man's bed, and he said, sir, if you don't mind, can I share with you what I think is the greatest Bible verse ever? And the gentleman said, well, Sure good to hear that right now. And he said, well, in John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said this, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I prepare a place for you? That's it. That's the greatest verse. God's made a home for you. The gentleman looked at him. No. I'm sorry, son, that is not the greatest verse ever. Well, the young pastor was kind of taken back. He didn't prepare for this. The gentleman said, read on. So he read on. And he read this, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Oh, that's it. Not only did he prepare a place for you, he promised. He said, I promise. Would I have told you if, that I go to prepare a place for you? The greatest for he promises that he's got this place for you. So you got the home, you got the promise, it's good stuff. Yeah, that's the greatest first. No, son, you're wrong. Read on. To which the young man read this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to myself, that where I am, 
there you may be also. What makes heaven so sweet is not the mansions, it's not the streets of gold, it's not the heavenly choirs, it's not seeing your gone loved one that you want to be united with. The sweetness and reward of heaven is that Jesus is there. That Christ, who is our life, is there. And for the first time in our life, we see our sweet Savior that we loved and longed for and followed and he worked through us and he saved us. We see him face to face. That's the reward. You see, when Christ is your life, Your life has a purpose. When Christ is your everything, your life has a reason and a meaning. And your death is a reward. See, Christ Christ envelops everything about us. He doesn't just take over your past. He doesn't just cover your past. He dwells in your present and your now. He wants to be all of it now. He wants everything now. He wants to work and live in you. He wants to give your life a purpose and meaning now. And he covers the future as well. He gives us a future. He gives us a reward. When Christ is your everything, then your life has a purpose and death is a reward. For me to live is Christ. Death is gain. But if for me to live is money, then death is a loss. If for me to live is pleasure, then death is loss. If for me to live is self, then death is a loss. If for me to live is this world, then death is a loss. If for me to live is my country, then death is a loss. But if for me to live is Christ, death is a gain. It is the greatest journey that one can ever take. It is the greatest gain we can ever face, face to stand face to face with our Savior. Just touch his nail-scarred hands that hung on that cross to save us and give us himself and give us that place to put our arms around his sword-pierced side that died and bled for us. To take upon this glorious body that he has and he gives to us. That, the win, win. For me to live is Christ and to die his game. What about you? Do you know him? Is he yours? And are you his?